guest today is Kenza Bryan, whose articles we have been reading for some time now, and they have delighted us because the quality and the depth uh, has gone so far beyond what we are used to reading, even with, with uh, even though we ha- we have learned a lot from our uh, journalist friends. So we were very excited when Kenza agreed to come and talk to us about a variety of climate finance topics. For sure, we won't be able to cover them all, but we're going to try to at least ask 50% of them. So welcome to our little podcast, Kenza. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. So I'm wondering if I might start out with a question about how you see the landscape of climate finance products. Thinking maybe one of your most recent articles, you reported that the popularity of these instruments, and you specifically talked about sustainability-linked bonds and loans, it is waning. And I wasn't sure whether that was because economic conditions have deteriorated, credit is not quite so easy, interest rates have gone up since the easy money period of the pandemic, or whether it's because the markets have become skeptical of these products and their ability to induce climate change. Now, I I confess I am biased towards explanation one because I I don't think the markets really cared that much about climate change, but I am looking forward to being corrected. And my reading of your article was that you suggested both. Yeah, I, I think it probably is a mixture of both. So overall, there was about half a trillion dollars of debt issued just in the first six months of the year that had a sustainability tag on it. So across the whole spectrum of wacky to just normal green bonds that we've been seeing for more than a decade. Um, And that was a 15% year on year decline compared to last year. So um, I don't think that's an insane decline compared to the wider um, debt markets. Um, So yeah, in general, reasonably strong. Um, Within that, I think there is growing skepticism about very specific products um, and in specific regions. So um, US investors, because of you know what, what we call the ESG backlash, but which just means, I guess, like added legal risk for green bond investors and issuers in the US. I, I think they've drawn back a little bit. And then um, in the EU, people are, still very worried about greenwashing and a lot of that is focusing on the wackier end of the spectrum like sustainability linked bonds that are pretty new anyway so so I don't think they're making a dent in the wider market but but yeah I I did do that piece about 
skepticism about those um and they did they did drop off a bit last year but i think that's more because people were like asking you know scratching their heads a bit about whether whether those worked as a as a thing rather than as you say you know despairing at the very idea of green finance i confess that i find so I, I like this spectrum of wacky to less wacky uh, climate-related instruments, although they all strike me as, if, if not wacky, then just sort of farcical and ineffective at, at doing anything. So I, I'm, I'm puzzled by the political backlash that, ESG lending in particular has provoked. I mean, I guess I shouldn't be. It's kind of low-hanging fruit in some ways. But do you do you feel like that's going to persist? That this in the U.S. at least kind of right-wing hostility to ESG-focused lending is that just a kind of something of the moment, or do you think that's going to continue to have some suppressive effect on the market? I think at least until the next US election is done and dusted, it's going to not only persist, but get quite a bit worse. Well, that could be the last US the... election. So maybe that'll exactly. end up for good. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how green finance got so sexy, but like many of the popular Republican candidates for nomination make being anti-ESG a massive part of their platform, even though most people don't know what the acronym means. And I think it's because um, it's an easy way of like translating hostility to wokery and the idea of wokeness, translating that into like business language. And it makes you sound kind of serious because you're protecting oil and gas companies that are the backbone of red state economies. um, And you're protecting you know, the bottom lines of US companies rather than just, you know, being an apologist for racism or sexism or, or like environmental harm. So, I mean, the, the SLB instrument in particular is, is I think, maybe worth focusing on and you call it wacky. And um, I was hoping you could just sort of explain a little bit about why you see it as sort of odd. And, and I... I um I asked that question in part because I was just sort of blown away the other day reading one of these instruments where you had know, specified multiple targets and these targets were like one of them had some carbon footprint related aspect to it you know we're going to reduce our you know, carbon footprint by X amount by you know Y date but then the other one was like we're going to increase the number of racial and ethnic minorities in leadership positions by Y percentage. It was this uh, kind of hodgepodge of disconnected um, but broadly progressive ambitions all baked into one financial instrument. And so that struck me as wacky as hell. What is it, though, that that makes this market seem so unusual and odd to you? Yeah, I mean, interesting that you describe it as disconnected feeling and looking because they're actually like the idealistic take on a sustainability linked bond is that it's it's change at the highest level of the whole company so 
whereas you could argue that green loans because they siphon off money for specific projects cause a kind of disconnection between the project and then the company who who's who you're funding the idea with sustainability linked bond is because it's just general purpose debt um that's the cost of which is tied to meeting some kind of social target some kind of environmental target at the corporate level as a whole rather than just at the project level that actually that's a very holistic thing that that's the idealistic take the reason i think they're wacky partly just because they're new um they're much more recent than they're much more recent and issuances are far smaller than green bonds which have become totally mainstream um so last year i think there were people thought there'd be about 200 billion dollars of issuances which compared to the half a trillion uh, that we said at the start is not that much. Um, but they, they're also, so yeah, so they're, they're not wacky as an idea. I think they're idealistic and very kind of almost wholesome as an idea. In practice, they're weird because the targets don't seem to have that much to do with the company's underlying transition goals and companies from um, oil and gas traders to meat packers to banks are all increasingly under pressure to publish transition plans that do take the company as a whole and tell us how it's going to reach its net zero goals. So they have to come up with plans and targets that um, are meaningful, basically. And the, But the weird thing is that those targets are not finding their way into the debt instruments that they use. Um, and in the case of sustainability-linked bonds, for example, in a recent piece, we looked at bonds issued by the, the, the biggest kind of meat processing company in the world, JBS. Um, and it, it sounded kind of cool. Um, it was linking the interest rate on its debt to um, massively reducing its carbon emissions, which, which mostly come from like the cows farting, the deforestation to create land on which the cows can grow, that kind of thing. Um, but it turned out that its cost of capital was actually linked to a tiny proportion of its emissions. So through some fancy accounting, it was linked to its direct scope one and two emissions and not the majority of them. So it was like a great idea, but used in a really nitpicking way, which means that in the end it becomes you know the the target is alienated from the actual net zero plan which means that this instrument that was designed to funnel money towards companies with strong targets we, we can talk we, we can talk a, a bit later about you know how they should actually work but this thing that was designed with lots of good ideas in mind um has actually become a bit confusing and nonsensical and and there definitely has been a drop off in interest in those specifically in sustainability linked bonds. The allegation made by an NGO that JBS's sustainability linked bonds are fraudulent and shouldn't have used this net zero language, they're obviously contested by JBS um, and the case is currently sitting with the SEC who hasn't yet formally decided to investigate um, JVS says it is progressing towards a meaningful net zero goal. So 
just to stay on this, I love the story of the the meatpacking company that 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 picked a narrow target that was largely unrelated to the emissions that it was creating that it could then, of course, uh, meet. Uh, but Mark and I did a research project with our friend and colleague, Quinn Curtis, last year. And we interviewed a, a lot of participants in the green bonds slash use of proceeds world. And even though we were looking at these use of proceeds bonds, largely because we were puzzled by the utter lack of legal enforcement, a number of the participants said, you know, uh, all of the problems that you are talking about will be solved because we've invented this great thing, the sustainability link bond, where it's no longer dependent on the company using the proceeds to do good stuff. Uh, instead, we're setting incentives for ourselves to meet certain targets in terms of things like carbon emission. And we thought that was great, but at, towards the end of our project, and our project took us a couple of years, towards the end of our project, we, within the, just the short span of two years, we started hearing people say, well, the great thing about these sustainability link bonds is that we don't actually have to do anything. We can just run our company as is without having any obligation to plant a lot of trees or you know, really reduce our carbon emissions. These are just general purpose bonds. And so long as we find some target somewhere in our company that we can meet, nobody's paying that much attention. And so we can issue the bond. And they, this, this was a, a quite stark, the story we heard towards the end as compared to the one we were hearing at the beginning, uh, they give us very, very different pictures of where the market was going to go. And all of this is to lead up. You have looked at a number of these sustainability-linked instruments, both the loans and the bonds. And I'm wondering what your overall sense of this market is whether or not what we're seeing, for example, and this is this is one that one of my students pointed out to me yes yesterday, a shipping company that ships things all over the world and so generates a lot a lot of uh, emissions. but it was doing a sustainability linked instrument. And the way it did its sustainability-linked instrument is it had purchased a subsidiary that was converting plastics into, you know, something something better. And so the target was just in this tiny subsidiary, whereas it was chugging along all around the world, polluting away, and but it happily still issuing a sustainability-linked bond. And then the second party verifier was saying, these are wonderful, ambitious targets. We applaud them. And they, the, the whole industry seems to be focused on making it grow bigger. And 
more money be generated. Yeah. And it's, I think it, it might, it might be interesting to start by thinking like all of us about what, what incentives there are to issue these. Um, because the stated incentive is to get a lower cost of capital for um, either companies that have really great green projects or companies that are decarbonizing in a meaningful way so that you harness green finance to stop climate change. That's the big dream. You know, it happens in this really organic way where the tougher the target, the higher the risk that it's not going to be met, which means that there's a step-up clause. So the investor um, gets a higher interest rate, receives, you know, the investor has an incentive to funnel money into companies that have ambitious targets and are likely, you know, where there's a real question mark over whether they're going to be met because they're so ambitious. So there's that first incentive of financing clean stuff or stuff that is decarbonizing fast, even if it's not clean, like it's an oil and gas company or an oil and gas shipping company. Um, so there are plenty of questions to be asked about whether that's working, but but there are other incentives at play here. So we did a piece just at the end of the week, uh, last week on banks, investment banks, trillion dollar sustainable finance targets um, and uh, banks like Bank of America and HSBC and all the biggest players in in the kind of arranging bond deals, they have these insanely high targets to meet by 2030. And every time they arrange a deal for a Chevron or, an, or a shipping company or a meat company, all, all of the world's highest emitters, basically, every time they arrange a deal and they slap a sustainable label on it, they can work towards that target and that target is really good for their reputation it's it's a really important part i think of their vision for not alienating shareholders and governments who 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 you know are starting to wonder whether finance is part of the problem that's causing climate change um so yeah i i i just i, I think those are the incentives to kind of weigh up and it's worth remembering that it's pretty hard for an oil and gas company to do a green bond. So one of the reasons maybe that we're seeing this new type of instrument emerge, sustainability-linked bonds and sustainability-linked loans, is that miraculously you can call them green, but you can just finance bog-standard stuff, um, which means that the quality of the target really, really starts to matter. I, I so regret that we don't have more time to dig into these. Uh, the, the, we should have asked you for a double session uh, in, instead of just a single session, our, our fault. But on the topic of these banks oh, wanting to do a lot of this business, and you mentioned Bank of America, and of course, Bank of thinking about Bank of America these days in the climate finance space makes me think about uh, the Gabon deal that you have also written yes. recently. And th they and uh, every other institution that has done these uh, debt for nature swaps have been uh, doing these victory dances about how wonderful these are. 
And I, I, I confess that when I first looked at one of these, the, the Belize deal, I was completely snowed. And I, I thought this is finally, this is a product that gives some credible improvement to the environment. Even though now when I think about it, 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 it was just really a tiny percentage of the revenues or the savings that were generated from that deal that were used for environmental conservation. But I, I was satisfied even with, with a tiny portion. But lo looking at the Gabon deal and uh, remembering your article, I, I think a couple of things that you flagged stood out for me, and, and please don't hesitate to correct me. And they were one that it, it was a substantial deal in terms of buying back Gabon's uh, existing debt. But then out of the savings, and, and he's, it, it is questionable that the, any of these should be called savings, because you have to, the proper comparison is not the discount on the market from par value. The proper, proper comparison is how much Gabon would have gotten had it done a debt restructuring, at, le at least to my mind. But let, let's just assume there, there was a savings. Only a tiny portion of the revenues generated by this beautifully titled blue bond i mean i love the title blue bond were used then to do environmental stuff mostly it's just buy back the debt and then the money could be used to gen build a giant presidential or coup leader palace and everybody's still partying it up saying we did a giant we did this blue bond it, the whole thing it, I hope it's not a scam, but it, at least reading your article and reading a couple of other articles made me think, oh, I really, really, this is what I thought was going to work. And these seem like even more scammy than the others. Yeah, I think it really still is an open question. Does it work? I think that's still an open question. Who profits is not an open question. Um, whereas international creditors and states and development banks used to do debt restructuring deals for countries in distress, as you'll know better than me. And, and they would sometimes add an environmental component to those deals. Investment banks are now moving into the space. And we know that these deals are lucrative for them and that banks over in Europe are starting to consider them. They were pioneered by Credit Suisse. But Oh, they this don't do them space. pro bono? I, don't the investment banks work on these pro bono? I'm just being sarcastic. <laughs> but but, but so, so that's the one question we know the answer to, that, you know, th th this helps Bank of America. As to whether it works for the environment, I, I mean, I, I don't know what you think. I mean, for the Gabon deal, yeah, I, it was something like $125 million went towards marine conservation. And that's that's quite hard to argue with. The structure seems quite sound. It's There are trustees and the money increases over time. And that, that does seem additional. Whether this really extremely convoluted instrument is the best way of getting there, it, is is really hard to say. As you pointed out, it's not clear that Gabon's government actually made 
very many savings. It seems to be that the money for marine conservation is basically generated by these political risk guarantees that are provided by development banks and institutions like um, the International Development Finance Corporation, I think it's called, and then there's the Latin American Development Bank. And it's basically their money and ultimately taxpayer money that's being used to to de-risk the debt of emerging markets in emerging market countries, which is then repackaged as sustainable and sold on through various mechanisms by these investment banks. So lots of question marks there. This Gabon deal was less transparent than some of the previous deals we've seen, which made it somewhat harder to, to get to the bottom of those questions. But but just maybe one final point there. Gabon, to me, is a really cool illustration of this philosophical debate between green bonds and sustainability linked bonds. So the idea of like, is the point of this new branch of finance to channel money towards green projects or is it to um, help the dirtiest players in the modern economy to start their transition late, even if they're late to the game. You know, it, it basically it's a question of, of purity. What standard of purity do we require of financial instruments that sound virtuous? You know, we're not the ones who said they were virtuous. They describe themselves. They use these marketing labels that invite scrutiny. And Gabon's interesting because it makes, I think, and I'm, I'm not an expert, it makes most of its money from oil and gas still. So it's this tiny West African country that's one of the most densely covered in, in, in rainforest compared to any other country in the world. So it's got this massive natural capital that it's trying to find a way to monetize because it wants to reduce its dependence on oil and gas. You know, it's not its fault in a way that, that, that's, that, that that's the wealth it had to develop and it now wants to use its natural wealth, which is a mixture of its marine wildlife and its and its forest riches. Um, so, you know, do, I don't know, do investors want to fund Gabon's debt, which could well be spent on oil and gas subsidies, if it means that they're also financing marine conservation? It's a, it's a really tricky one. And, and then the question of what role the investment banks play in this really subtle negotiation is, is even more interesting. I don't. I don't know. I, I I do think this is the the important question, and there's a way to to look at these deals and to take a somewhat optimistic perspective from them. But I can't help thinking of them as basically, and and I come back to something Mitu said uh, a little while ago about how the right comparison here is, you know, what we should compare what a country could accomplish in a debt restructuring in many of these cases. And, and um, you know, these debt for nature swaps fare quite poorly in that comparison. I can't help but thinking, but think of them as basically like you've got some environmental do-gooders and politicians with short-term interests and they get together and they sell out the populace for some short-term gain for both of them. You know, the Nature Conservancy gets a little investment in the environment and, you know, the politicians maybe get a inconvenient 
balloon maturity that's coming up, get that refinanced. But, you know, the country as a whole would be better off with a debt restructuring that would free up more fiscal space to invest in the environment if they really want to. And it's just, it's so, I'm so tainted by that perspective that that it's hard for me to to get rid of it. But I, you, you mentioned the ring forest in, in Gabon. And so I feel like that's like a nice transition point for me to ask you a bit about carbon credits, which I know you've written and thought about. And I, is there any, my sense, and I don't, I haven't studied those markets well, but my sense is that there's even less reason for optimism with regard to carbon credit markets. Am I, I'm hoping you can tell me I'm off base or that there's reason for hope though. Optimism for the the climate, I guess. Yeah, for 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 carbon credits to actually be real things, right? To to represent yeah. something that's additive rather than just kind of sham um a market built on people yeah. doing what they were going to do anyway. Yeah, I, I think there are no e- easy answers on carbon credits. There's been a real reckoning this year, as you'll have followed. People have realized that a large chunk of the carbon credits that companies were using to supposedly cancel out their emissions were, you know, basically fake. They The maths wasn't right. The forests had burnt down there was all sorts of problems um, and all, all these questions were asked, which has led to a slight retrenchment from the voluntary carbon markets and big airlines, for example, saying they're no longer getting involved and and ho- hopefully that will push them to, to decarbonize their actual business in a more meaningful way. And, and in a way, that's a victory for the climate campaigners who said all along that carbon credits don't make sense. There is another way of looking at it, which is again coming back to the countries like like Gabon, like the Democratic Republic of Congo, like to some extent Brazil, who've got this vast natural wealth, who've contributed far less than the global north to climate change, and who want to find a way to monetize it. You know, not just because of a sense of fairness, but also to finance their own transition and to try and protect themselves from these terrible natural catastrophes that are coming down the line. And in that sense, there's still hope, I think, for, for, for carbon markets. This, as far as I can tell, this year is a real moment of flux. So um, countries and, and parties to um, the Paris Agreement, who, who are going to meet at COP in December later this year, before this major UN conference on climate change are currently trying to work out, for example, is it acceptable to issue a carbon credit that relates to protecting a forest? You know, forget planting trees. Is it acceptable to just, for for Gabon or Zimbabwe, to just not chop trees down? And based on that counterfactual, that scenario that never happened, issue a carbon credit And then a second question, if the maths behind that makes sense, if we accept the premise of that carbon credit, should should Zimbabwe then be able to sell on that carbon credit to a country that's continuing to expand its oil and gas production, like the United Arab Emirates, to to cancel out its own emissions using that carbon credit? 
or 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 a final scenario possibly a better scenario a that the most densely forested countries in the world could monetize those forests and then sell those credits but to countries that had already meaningfully cut their emissions as a way of kind of mitigating the emissions that that are really hard to abate so to the best performers on the climate it would be like a transfer between the best performers on the climate because they haven't emitted much historically and then the best performers on the climate because they're moving swiftly towards their 2030 2050 targets and they genuinely want to find a way of funneling cash to the global south to help them finance that transition so i, I think it's I think we've moved beyond the question of whether the whole thing is corrupt. I think the whole thing was corrupt, but it still has massive potential. Is there... So I I know when I hear my economist colleagues talk about carbon credit markets, that many of them still think that that's ultimately the only thing that can work, but they don't seem to think that the voluntary carbon credit system is going to do anything. And we've seen that. And I'm just uh, parroting what some of them have said to me in the context of projects we've done on climate and debt, is, is that you can see this differential between the American carbon credit market, although it's not really a market and uh, the european one uh, because the european one is more mandatory and and seems to be working pretty well and the american one is just nobody knows what the hell is happening so i, I mean it it does i and i get i think i was reading about this in again in one of your pieces and when i look at the climate data there are these parts of the world with the carbon sinks where these parts of the world are doing uh, a lot of the heavy lifting to preserve our environment. And we want them to continue to stay in that uh, mode and, in fact, maybe improve given the damage we've done to the rest of the world. But the question is, uh, how do we set up the right incentives via a market mechanism, if that's the best mechanism, uh, to a preserve the various protections we have, like I think you mentioned the Congo, and then uh, improve upon it. it. It just seems I don't know. I, I, I that was an optimistic bit of your article, but then I also uh, noted much pessimism and then there was much pessimism in what you just said. Do, does, do people have um, ideas about, I mean, uh, undoubtedly they do, but are we moving towards something improve, improving on the current state? Are the European, do the Europeans have the right model for us? Yeah. So as far as I understand, the EU's flagship emissions trading scheme, so the ETS is working relatively well carbon price hit 100 euros a ton back in february and they're doing the right thing i guess from a pop you know government policy point of view every year they're cutting the number of credits 
being traded and they're basically pushing up the price of carbon year on year. So that, that's probably a horribly garbled way of explaining it. But the price is rising, which is what everyone wants. It creates more of an incentive to stop polluting. The problem is, as you point out, that that's not a global scheme um, and it, it it's not great for the countries who have been exporting their goods into the EU and are soon going to have to start paying for the, the carbon that's gone into those production processes. So it, it raises much bigger questions about, you know, what global institutions like the UN, the IMF, the World Bank can can do. And the most convincing thing I've heard, uh, but maybe I was just all excited because it was the first time I'd ever met a head of state and there, there were probably better solutions out there. But we did this interview with President Ruto of Kenya and he just said, slap a global carbon tax on fuel, on shipping, on financial transactions. Forget the carbon price. You know, forget trading carbon credits, just do a tax or a simple global tax. The, the the problem is the tax, for example, on shipping, that's been discussed for decades and it's never happened. These things have to be done by consensus. I think so far only France has really pioneered this idea of a of a carbon tax on financial transactions. We're back to square one because these really brilliant global ideas that don't rub up against problems of borders they all they they require international consensus and the reason we're in a bad way is we don't have an international consensus on how to do these things i don't know if what what both of you think i think that i mean that that's right that there is no global consensus and probably no prospect of reaching one and i i'm glad you brought up that that amazing interview you and um uh, you and your your colleague was at attractive mooney i can't i can't remember yes. that the two of you did yeah. that fabulous interview um and and many of the the quotes in there are articulating these quite ambitious goals for providing widespread and deep debt relief to poor countries that need it to free up the space to invest in conservation and these other environmental objectives and you know proposals ranging from you know increased use of SDRs to um to sort of broader restructuring plans my sense is that while we're in the middle of a time when there is a lot of talk about these ambitious coordinated mechanisms, we're not really any closer to reaching them than we have ever been. And and so I'm quite I'm quite distressed, I guess, uh, about that, although although not very surprised. And, and it sounds like you're you're basically of the same perspective that, we're no closer to reaching any kind of real global consensus than we were 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, it was, it was, it was slightly, it was in some ways um, uplifting to see this slightly pie in the sky idea from our 
President Ruto interview then appear in a more formal way in the outcomes of the Africa Climate Summit that took place a couple of weeks ago in Nairobi, where African heads of state got together and formally backed this idea. That was encouraging. It doesn't mean that countries in the global north are going to back it, and I don't think they will. The other encouraging thing is if the African Development Bank says, again, after that Nairobi summit, that it's been making progress on convincing the IMF to reallocate these reserve assets, these SDRs, directly to the African Development Bank, which would be unprecedented and which would allow it to start dishing out some of this capital in the form of guarantees. So these, yeah, optimism is, is maybe tricky, Everyone's pointing us towards these annual meetings of the IMF and the World Bank that are coming up soon um, and where they have promised to talk about everything we've been talking about, you know, where the debt for nature swaps could be scaled up so that all debt restructuring deals would some kind of green component to it, um, where the capital requirement rules should also have a green component to it. Because one of the asks of all of these leaders we've been talking about is you know engage with our ideas which are in some ways um going much further than what's been proposed before but also reform the institutions that you created reform the global financial architecture don't wait for our ideas don't wait for a consensus on a carbon tax just tweak the existing systems that are meant to keep an eye on the global economy and keep it in check tweak them to account for climate risks at every level in the central banks in the imf in the multilateral development banks when e20 creditors meet take it into account so rethink the way you think about credit risk always think about climate risk you know that that, that, that that's the the question and how exactly they're going to get there i don't know in a way in a way, even that is talking around the main issue, which is whether countries are going to commit to cutting their use of fossil fuels, because these, these, um, as you know, we're, we're nowhere near that. And, and that's why I guess we're tinkering with the financial system. Inza, thank you so very much. We've already taken up more of your time than we should have. Uh, I, I'm not sure I'm ending up optimistic, although I think I'm optimistic in the sense that you and Mark have persuaded me that combining debt reduction or conventional financing tools with climate improvement might just end up putting money in the hands of intermediaries, which is a lesson I should have learned a long time ago. It's a it's a it's a movie we have seen before, and and maybe instead we should just focus on focus directly on climate improvement as opposed to just trying as trying to tie it to these other projects that are connected to the developing world. Yeah, and there's one thing maybe I forgot to maybe we haven't gone into the context enough but it's obviously not just a climate issue it's a 
it's a fairness issue and it's a emerging market debt crisis issue. So I don't want to belittle the conversations that are happening to reform the financial system and to try and make sure that countries that pay a lot to service their debt could maybe pay a bit less. I, I mean, that has to happen anyway. And I think that's the pitch that in particular emerging markets and and some of these African countries are, are making, you know, regardless of whether, regardless of what happens on the climate, we've got this other crisis on our hands. Thank you so much. It's been such a treat to talk to you. Thanks, Kenta.